Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is truly a legend and a pioneer, Mr. Electro Records, Panavision, and so much more, Jack Holzman. Jack? It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, first question, why is there no K on Jack? Because the name was originally Jacob, and Ah. my dad, I'm a junior, Jack Holzman, it's Jacob Holzman, and my dad said that when he was going to school up in Portland, Jacob was a Jewish name. So he decided to get rid of that in terms of talking to other students. So he named himself Jack, and I inherited. On my birth certificate is Jacob Easton Holzman II. But you are Jewish and were raised Jewish, correct? Yeah, I was. Okay, so he was doing it... Uh, just so he wouldn't experience anti-Semitism in Portland? What was he doing in Portland? Well, the whole family had come across the United States, had settled in Denver, and at one point thought that Portland was new, fresh, open territory, and uh, they opened up secondhand stores there. Okay, we'll get back to that, but... uh In our conversations previous to this, you said, well, you didn't know whether you could schedule because you were doing work for Warner Music. What exactly, how exactly, and what are you doing involved with Warner today? Well, uh, what happened was uh, that I was with the company for 23 years, and I knew I couldn't leave the company until we had a solid distribution system, and I had made a promise to myself to quit at uh, at midlife. Uh, I saw a movie once, uh, uh, and it was a story of about a guy who decides that he wants to stop at midlife and figure out what he's doing and then pick up and go from that. And I thought that was in, uh, in incredibly smart. And so I knew that I wanted to stop in my 40s and take how many years to do whatever I wanted. There were things I longed to do. I was a pilot. I loved airplanes. I liked to fly airplanes. I loved to scuba dive. I wanted to travel. 
I just wanted to have time off and see what comes into my uh, perspective and figure out what I'm going to do later. I did that for seven years. Uh, and then in the end of that seventh year, I uh, called the chairman of the company and uh, I said to him, I'm ready to come back. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to come back, not in the music group, but as, as a technologist, your chief technologist. He said, you're hired. And then we got into cable and a whole bunch of interesting things. And I was there as part of that group. And when we had problems, I knew how to solve them. Okay, so you're rehired at Warner as the chief technologist. Where does that ultimately leave you? That ultimately led me into cable TV. Uh, I had a, a friend who had done a video, which I thought was quite amazing. And... Uh, I said, I think there's something here. One of the things that happened that was material was that somebody gave me a film of his performing a song, and I thought it was wonderful. And I got it up on one of the uh, Warner Cable channels, and there was excitement about that, and then that turned itself into MTV over time. And uh, that was just wonderful because suddenly... The record companies had an outlet for making people aware of their records and promoting their records uh, without having to go through radio stations and all the nonsense that went on with getting your thing on the air. And it was a more complete emotional picture or emotional experience of what the song was. So MTV was, a, was, a, was the happy outcome of, of what I had started, I got it to the right people at the right time, and it just happened. So from there, you go to Panavision. You go through many iterations, but before we go linearly, you're still working for the company today? Yes, that's a longer story. But uh, what happened was that after we got uh, MTV up, Warner Communications became Warner Communications. They immediately acquired a company called Panavision at the recommendation of the man who was running the, uh, uh, the studios. And the thing about Panavision was that it made cameras, it was very profitable, at least cameras and lenses, to all of the picture companies. The picture companies had sent their equipment back, and what happened at Panavision is that it was upgraded, there were new lenses, Everything was guaranteed. They rented it. You had somebody standing by to fix it if it needed fixing. That was all wonderful. Then suddenly they were spending a lot of money, and nobody could find out what the money was being what the money was being spent on. And since I knew something about uh, cinematography, uh, Steve Ross, who was the chairman of the company, asked me to go out and find out what the hell was going on. So I went to Panavision, and I. Uh, I sat with the man who was in charge of the company, Bob Gottschalk. He was very tightly woven. I couldn't get any answers. And then he took me into a room where all of the Panavision equipment was showing. And I looked around and I saw a camera that had a red light flashing. And it had, it had film in it, but I didn't hear anything. So I said, is that a silent camera? He said, yes. I said, in effect, 
what you did was you didn't try to muffle the noise. You tried to eliminate it before it happened. He said exactly right. And that was the Panaflex. So suddenly, movie-making changed. Everybody wanted a Panaflex because it was a smallish camera. It could be moved around, and you didn't hear it. It, it saved all kinds of time and money. Gottschalk was running it. He was running it moderately well. But then he was killed by a live-in male lover. And uh, I got a call from Steve Ross saying, we've heard that uh, Gottschalk was, uh, was killed. Can you find out what's going on and try to come up with something that you think we should do? So I was up at Atari where I was in a... Uh, or I was a director uh, because I had been involved in the evaluation, the technical evaluation of that company. And I called into the uh, Gottschalk's uh, secretary and I said, Michael, and I, he said, it's true. And I said, what's happening? He said, everybody's going around crazy with rumors. I said, I'd like you to stay off the phone for five minutes. I need to think. And he said, I'll do that. And I, as he stayed off the phone for five minutes, I asked myself, do I really want to take over this company? Do I think I can do that job? Will I have some fun? It's so totally different from anything I've ever done. And yet it's in a business that I, I, I admire so much. And I called him back and I said, well, tell everybody I'm taking over the company and I'll be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And you pick the executives you think I need to meet with first before we meet with everybody. He said, fine. And then I called Steve Ross and he and I said, it's true. And he said, you have any ideas? I said, I've taken over the company. <laughs> and he said, what can I do for you? I said, don't call me, cash my checks. And he said, agreed, we'll do that. I said, I need, I'll talk to you when I think I've got my ha arms wrapped around it. But these are people I don't know and I'm going to have to earn my way into their confidence, and that's going to take time. And that's what we did. And uh, I took over the company. We brought in all of the people from around the world who were leasing agents for us, and uh, they all were helpful. And when I was in the company two or three months, I could see the defects and what we needed to do and where we needed to go. And we had optics that were too old and some optics that weren't honest. So we got it all fixed. And three years later, Ross decided he didn't want the company anymore and he was going to sell it. I had money and was willing to, to buy it with, a, with people I could raise money from. But he never sold any company to any person who would run it on the grounds that you knew stuff that he didn't know. And so you had an advantage. So he turned me down and that was it, and uh, eventually I left uh, Warner Communications and stayed out while I took a vacation that I had promised myself. I had seen a movie uh, called Holiday with Cary Grant that was a wonderful movie about a guy who was from the wrong side of the tracks when he was on the right side of the tracks and beginning to make some money. If he made enough, he wanted to take a break for a period of time, figure out where he was going and what his life was all about. And at 19 years old, I saw, sat in the back of the theater and I said, God, that makes so much sense. I don't want to forget that. And I didn't. So that when my contract was up, 
uh, and I was asked to renew. I said, look, you can put Electra with Asylum. You got Geffen. You got all of these good people. You don't need me anymore. I need time for myself. And I had discovered Hawaii in a holiday trip, and I knew that's where I wanted to be. And I moved to Hawaii, and I lived there for seven-plus years and uh, did everything I wanted to do. So all the people I wanted to see and meet and have all of the adventures. And I, I loved my life, but I knew it was time for me to go back to work. And I called Steve Ross, and that's when we got into the stage of... Uh, of being uh, the uh, chief technologist. But let's go back to the beginning. So your parents, were they born in the U.S.? Were they born in the so-called old country? No, they were born in the United States. My mother was born in Cincinnati. My father was born in Portland. Where else? Okay. So they met in Portland? Uh, actually, they did. My mother came there with her mother, Estelle Sternberger, who was a real personality. She had a program, a, a weekly political analysis program on CBS Network, which was broadcast on uh, Saturday mornings. And... That was a big piece of my actually going into music because when I asked to sit in the studio with her, they said, oh, no, you can't do that. But you can sit in the control room. And in the control room were all the lathes and turntables and uh, everything that was used in broadcasting. And I was intensely curious about it. And I'd ask a lot of questions and they'd explain it to me. So that in 1948, when I was reading Life magazine and saw an article uh, that uh, showed the inventor uh, or the creator for CBS Labs of the LP record, I knew that it was going to be a winner and that small independent labels could start because we would do stuff that was not related to the major labels at all. I, I thought I would do folk music and Baroque music. Baroque music was too expensive for me. I, I only had $600. And so I tried folk music. Glenn Yarborough, who turned out to be a star later and a member of the Limelighters, uh, was one of my first early artists. And at the end of that third year, St. John's College was an amazing school. It, it had a curriculum that did not use textbooks. It used the original books. If you were studying geometry, you went all the way back. Well, well, let's just let's go back. We'll get back to St. John's. So you grew up in Portland? No, I didn't grow up. I grew up in New York. My father came to New York uh, after his after his pre med. He came to medical school at Harvard, and after medical school at Harvard, uh, he was taken in by Mount Sinai and was at Mount Sinai for a number of years. And then he went into private practice and he called up my mother uh, or wrote her a letter or whatever he did. And then they started dating and eventually I emerged. And how many kids in the family? Two, my brother and I, my brother, Keith. Who's the oldest? I'm the oldest. I'm 88. And to what degree, being the oldest child, were you the, the embodiment of their hopes and dreams? My father didn't think I was very smart. And he said that, look, I, I know you're going to have a trouble finding a way to make a living. So I'll buy a drugstore for you 
in this building. We'll put it up and then you run the drugstore and we split the profits at the end of the year. And I said, that's not what I have in mind. <laughs> he said, what did you have in mind? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to think on it. And uh, I started a little record shop for folk music. And as the office for a record company, I named Electra because I loved the name. Electra was one of the one of the outer muses in the uh, solar system, and but I wanted Electra with a C was eh. I wanted a harder, more Germanic K, and so Electra came with a K, and I found my first folk singer Jean Ritchie, and she we made a wonderful album together. Uh, you could record the artist in their own home. I had my own tape recorder by that time, $600 magna quarter and a microphone. And so what we would do was we would set up the rooms, hang, hang things on the walls to keep the echoic nature of a room from happening into the microphone. And I did that with a whole bunch of artists, Oscar Brand, Frank Warner. Uh, and slowly, the, and these were 10-inch LPs. They kind of grew and grew and grew. I still wasn't making money. I was making debt. In 1955, I was sitting in a, at a home with some friends, and they were having everybody brought their guitar, and they were singing songs. And they gave this guitar to this guy who was an actor, and he just blew me away. It was Theodore Bikel. Uh, he was doing Yiddish songs, he was doing Israeli songs, he was doing Russian folk songs. And I knew those genres had big audiences in the major cities. So I sat Theo down and we talked and we made a record deal together. And uh, we started making these albums. And then in 1956, when 12-inch records happened, we added more music to the albums. They came out as 12-inch LPs. And... Suddenly, we were selling records. Okay, let's go back. Uh, you're growing up. Uh, what kind of kid are you? You have a lot of friends. You're more of an introvert. Uh, I was a loner. I had one friend named Adam Pinsker. Adam was smart and kept me kind of straightened out. I was kind of loose and banging at all kinds of edges. But when I had something I loved to do, I did it very well. And when I went to St. John's College, uh, which was this great book school, which Ahmed Erdogan had gone to uh, eight years earlier than me, when we found out that we had both gone to this very obscure school where there were only 100 students in it for uh, all, uh, all uh, grades, big hugs and kisses because we had that extremely important education and opportunity in hand. Uh, why did you go to St. John's? Because I had the, my only other choice with another college. I had a promising date for that weekend, so I, I, they, they insisted upon an interview that weekend. I said, the hell with it. I'll go to St. John's, whatever that is. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into, but it turned out to be a turning point in my life. And as I was there and picking up some packages that I had sent to myself, I noticed one to Adam Pinsker. He had also ended up in this school. A childhood friend whom I hadn't seen in years was in this school, and he was enormous help to me. And so at what point do you decide to start a lecture? Are you still at St. John's, and don't you have a partner? 
Uh, I'm still at St. John's. I had somebody who had come out of the Navy who put up $300 and they, we were partners. Uh, he later didn't want to be involved with this. And so I, I think I gave him a thousand dollars. I don't know where the hell I got the thousand dollars, but I gave him a thousand dollars and he went his way and I owned a hundred percent of the company, but we were in about $90,000 worth of 1955 debt before Theodore Bikel. The Theodore Bikel records between them sold about 100,000, but they were very profitable, despite the fact that they were very elaborately produced. If you had a Russian album, we had a book of liner notes. It wasn't liner notes on the back so much as it was liner notes inside the album. We would have the songs in Russian in a transliteration, which is what if you want to sing along with this and can read English, you might be able to sing with uh, with Theo. Uh, and then the English translation. And because they were so complete and the covers were so good, we did well. And I had very good suppliers. They were really generous with me. I owed them $90,000. But my strategy with them was not to put off paying them it was the opposite, to pay a small amount every two weeks. So they saw a check coming every two weeks, and the checks got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then one day I wrote checks for $90,000, paid them off, and kept them. Okay. Now, I certainly remember growing up with Theodore Bakel Records, and he was very definitely a star. The reason I bring this up is when you meet him in this party— had he been contacted by anybody else to make records? No, he was a he was an actor. He was on Broadway. I thought he could be an, a, a, a record artist. And I said to him, come on over to the house and we'll record some stuff. We'll see how it goes. And then I played it back for myself a lot. And I said, this is an, this is an artist, I think, that will help get me there. And about five years after he had helped get me there. I said, Theo, we're doing well now. You deserve a reward as an appreciation. And he said, what? I said, well, I'll sell you 5% of the company for the low price of $20,000. And he bought it. And when the company was sold, he walked out with $500,000. But it's, that's what I felt I owed him. He was there. Okay, at that time, you have a record deal. Today, record deals are very complicated, never mind the streaming era. What kind of deal did you cut Theo back in the 50s? Well, I cut Theo uh, a deal of uh, no money down and a royalty of 7% on 90% uh, of the price on which all records were sold because there was a 10% federal tax at that time uh, instituted during the war. So that was it. The contracts were very simple. We had very successful series. We had a series, we did a, another uh, artist, Oscar Brand, who had a New York radio show every Sunday, came to me one day and said, you know, I've been getting lyrics and stuff with melodies from uh, Air Force people. He said, you know, we could make an Air Force album. I said, that kind of crazy, but let me listen to the material. And the material was there. And so I said, okay, we'll call it the Wild Blue Donder. We made a record. We put it out. It did well. And we sent a copy uh, with a note to the unit that bought all of the stuff for the stores that they ran in each of the uh, 
various locations the throughout PX. the world. And uh, so we sent it, and we didn't hear from them. And then about three weeks later, we got a letter with an order for 10,000 copies. <laughs> I called them and said, do you guys make a mistake with a zero? And they said, no, no, we think we can sell 10,000. And so that worked. And then we did it for the Marines. We did it for the Navy. We were doing well. No, nothing explosive, but I was having fun. And we were doing things that other people didn't do. We, there was a moment when I ha there was nothing to record. I could not find an artist I wanted, just before Josh White. So I said, what else can I record? I'm a ham radio operator, and I have trouble with Morse code, so I came up with a Morse code record that you could play at 33, 45, and 78, depending upon your uh, how good you were in, in reading Morse code. And we didn't sell it through record stores. We sold it through stores that had big mail-order departments. Uh, and they were located throughout the country. Uh, Concord was one of them. There were about eight. And they each sold about 500 a month. So I was selling 3,000 a month of what I couldn't give away in, fo in folk music. And I never forgot that. It's not always about recording music, which came later on and proved to be the most dynamic restart in a record company that I know of. Okay, now, one thing we know in the era of independent distribution as opposed to branch distribution, that it wasn't always so easy to get paid, even if the record sold. What was that experience like for you? I didn't have that experience very badly. Uh, I picked good people who actually paid me, but took their time about it, which was one of the reasons why I didn't have enough money to pay off uh, uh, the manufacturers and the people who made the records assemble the albums. But I knew that had to end. And that was one of the sparking points with which I always lived. I've got to find an opportunity for independent labels to be able to supervise and handle the last thing between the record and the person who buys it. So... You ultimately form WIA, but staying with the Electra story, tell us the story of Josh White. Josh White, uh, I got a phone call one day. A man said to me, I represent Josh White, and Josh White can't get a record contract because he's been blacklisted. Why was he blacklisted? He performed at a Russian co a concert to raise money for Russia and special arms for Russia during the Second World War. So he was blacklisted. I said, that's no reason to be blacklisted. They, well, they're calling him a communist. I said, well, I call him Josh White, and I would love to have him. He said, I'm not going to send him over if you're going to disappoint him. I said, if he can sing the way I remember he could sing, then you have no problem. And he came over, and we sat down, and we got along very well. And then he began to sing. And I realized that all of the recordings that had been done, mono records, were done very cheaply, and he didn't sound like Josh White. I thought I could make him sound like Josh White. And we talked about this, and then we did, the, uh, we did an album called uh, John Henry, which was two LPs. One was just the story of John Henry, and the other was other songs from that same period. And then we did Josh at Midnight, which was the winner. We did it late in the evening. A young lady would drop by. Uh, we, we had to do it all with one microphone. So I had, I put the people where I thought they belonged in front of the microphone and 
you know, tape something to the floor so that they wouldn't overstep. We recorded, and that's when we made the Josh White recording, and it just took off. By takeoff, I mean it was selling 30, 35,000, which for me was wonderful, and he got paid. So Josh was easy to work with. We made about seven albums in all over time. So this begs a question. Since you were recording in mono and you had the magnetone uh, tape recorder, were you also serving as the engineer, and do you have skills in that area? I did everything myself, yes. I, I was the engineer. I had the tape recorder. We had the one microphone. They were placed strategically where they should be in terms of distance. Uh, they were wonderfully cooperative, but I recorded every album with my tape recorders. I would go places by strapping my tape recorder onto the spare seat behind me on my motor scooter. I didn't have a car, but I motor scooted everywhere. I loved that motor scooter. Okay, so for those of us who are a little bit younger, we remember Electra being one of the two kings of folk music, the other being Vanguard. So as we start to hit the 60s and the folk music uh, era begins with even Hootenanny on TV, you start putting out these folk records that start getting traction. Okay, what happened was by 1960, I thought folk music, the five to 800 songs that were folk songs had all been recorded. They had been played to death on radio and people would sit there clapping their hands, which had nothing to do with folk music. And I said, it's a different direction. If I find a folk artist that I, or an artist like a Judy Collins, who I think has, has talent, I'll do that. But I don't know what the hell to record. And I'm not going to record crap. So I went back to my time of, re, of recording the Morse code and I said, I said, what's not out there that needs to be done? Because I'm not going to make any piece of shit. I thought and I thought and I came home one day and as I was closing the door, I heard a car crash, which was on my wife's TV. And I said, sound effects. There are no sound effects albums that I know of that are available to the public. So I did a lot of research and I start, started by sitting down watching television and writing down every sound effect I heard and every sound effect I could think of. When I had 600 of them, I put together a team of people who had, for whom I could lease the right recorders and microphones and stereo, and we started recalling, recording all of these, and it took about eight months. And when I got them all together, I, I programmed them into... 10 albums, and you could buy them as a unit or you could buy them individually, but you could, you ended up with 40-some-odd sound effects at a cost of about 14 cents each, and it blew wide open. I could not believe the numbers of sound effects I was selling, and they were, they were obviously in record stores. We made them available through mail order. We produced a very good record, and we thought about everything. To locate a sound effect when you had 20 of them on one side, we had a little ruler, which had a little hole where you, which you put over the center hole, and then you wrote down which track that arrow was entered into. So you had 20 arrows, and you could find the sound effect immediately. So you think about all of that stuff beforehand, and then you do it. And when you do it with love and intention, 
and you don't spare the money, you do well. We made a million and a half dollars that year on sound effects. That's a lot of money uh, 60 years ago. Back in 1961, boy, that was a lot of money. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, one also has to question, you're having these huge successes. Are other people then imitating you? There's no point in imitating a set that's got everything. You force them out of doing it by making it so good and so complete and so full that nobody wants to buy anything but yours. Because you have those little grace notes, like the thing that slips over the spindle on your turntable. Those kinds of thinking and talking about how we did them. And then we would sell them in a special package. You could get the package for $50 and uh, we would send it off to you. You got the whole thing. We didn't collect for licensing. If somebody wanted to use a sound effect, go ahead and use it. We don't care. 
We made it for you to use. And we're very satisfied with the profit we're making per album. Wow. So with all of these benefits, who's going to come out and try to compete with us, especially when we did such a good job making them? You have this big victory. What's your next step? My next step is, okay, folk music is gone. Where do we go? And I'm beginning to hear, I heard about the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, uh, and that sounded really good. And uh, my, uh, but but before we get to Paul Butterfield, you rec- you recorded Tom Rush. There were a lot of other people that you recorded Phil Oaks that were folky acts before you got into rock. You're you're absolutely right. So let me start again. Knowing that there were no more folk songs anymore, there was beginning to come forth a generation of people who, inspired by Dylan, were writing their own songs. And they, they were Phil Oaks and Tom Rush, who was also an interpreter, and any number of people who wrote distinctively different songs, Phil Oaks especially. And we recorded all of those people. And then as we saw different things happening, and, and Dylan went electric at Newport, and I was standing right below him, and parts of the Butterfield Blues Band were accompanying him, and I just shivered because I knew exactly where I was going. I was going to Los Angeles, and I was out the next day, and we started looking for things, and the first group I found was Love. And then Love turned me on to a group that they thought was pretty good that was the second on their bill, which was The Doors. Now, I went to see The Doors four times before I got them. I got the means before I understood because Jim loved to sing the blues and he'd sing the blues for a whole set. And I don't need Jim to sing the blues, but I need those musicians. They are superb. Guitar, keyboards, drums, each superlative. I can get the right material to them. And then one day they play a song that is so totally off the wall. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar? Yes, that's the song. They just sort of slipped into the whiskey bar song. And when I heard what they could do with that, and I heard how Jim and everybody was so locked in with each other, I said, I have to have that group. And I went back and introduced myself. They knew we were coming. And we talked and we talked and we talked. And uh, I made them an offer, and we went back and forth. They were taking their time. They had a contract with Columbia, but Columbia dropped them. Uh, Columbia said, well, we'll keep you if you'll record a single for us and if we like the single. And they said, the hell with this. We don't want this. We've got an offer from Elektra. So they started nosing around and talking to other artists about Elektra, and we had no problems there. And we signed the doors. Now, the very first album was both a huge success and legendary. Can you tell us about the experience of making that? Well, my problems were that I wasn't the producer. I needed somebody who was right and who could keep them in line and who was at least as smart as they were and uh, could manage the group. So we decided to do two weeks of rehearsal. And I asked Paul Rothschild to do it. He said, well, look, I'll go out there and I'll check it out. But they liked each other a lot. And so there was a natural coming together. And he he helped polish the songs a lot. 
uh, he would make suggestions about how to make changes, and they would do it. And the album was recorded in about a week. Bruce Botnick, who had done the Love album with me, and I was the producer of that, uh, was terrific. And so the combination of Rothschild and Bruce Botnick was just magic, and the band, and we did it. It was wonderful in many respects. I knew that Jim was in love with the U-47 microphone because he was a big Frank Sinatra follower. And Frank Sinatra always sang in front of this microphone. So when he came into the studio and I said, for the vocals, you'll be in the booth or outside, depending, and this is your microphone, he had tears in his eyes. He said, you gave me Frank Sinatra's microphone? I said, we think that's best for you. (laughs) And uh, it went well. I mean, there were all kinds of wild things that happened during it that Jim got mad and threw a... threw some stuff against the glass in the control room. Uh, I had to take care of all of that and keep it quiet without calling the police. I I knew he was going to be needing constant watch, but we finished the album, and it was scheduled to come out in November of 1966, and I said to myself, wrong month. So I, I got the band together, and I said, guys, I made a mistake of promising you November. It's the wrong month. They said, why? Christmas is coming. People can give it a Christmas present. I said, you're not going to get the airplay that you need. And I said to them, if you let me come out in January, January 4th, I promise you, you will be the only album we release that month. Now, you could do that when you're only issuing 18 albums a year. But nobody offers anything that crazy. And, on, and I had everything pro. We knew what we were going to do. I had the idea. I see these billboards on Sunset Strip, but nothing had to do with music. So I decided I'm going to buy a year on that billboard. And we went up. And when the record was out, there was this billboard on Sunset Strip, which was you couldn't miss. And then we, we did our job and took it across very slowly. And the band was an enormous success. And the doors were history and joy, and then history and not so much joy sometimes. But the artist always comes first, and you take care of the artist. And the other, th- the other three lads were just beautiful to work with. And the ones who are still alive are still very close friends. So do you know that Light My Fire is going to be a smash, and how do you make it a smash back in the days of indie labels competing with majors? I knew that was the song. But it was very long. That was the problem. So I sat down with Rothschild and everybody and said, let's try some edits down. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do two forms of the song. I'll do a single which you can buy that has the complete song, the short song on one side and the complete song on the other side. And or I will come out with one that has the short version and then another song from the album on the other side. Both of these will be out. The public will buy what it wants, but I need to get it heard. And what was happening in 1965, starting in San Francisco, uh, there was FM radio for the kinds of music we were recording. And uh, so I knew that if I could get the FM stations to begin to back it, their AM counterparts would be forced to putting it on the air sooner or later. And that's what happened. 
Uh, it went on the air in Los Angeles the same time we, they were having the 1967 rock festival. Monterey Pop. Mon- Monterey Pop. And they were all over the radio. They had not been invited. Love had been invited, but it turned it down. But whenever you turned on the radio, and everybody was nuts. Why aren't the doors here? They've got the hottest song in California. And it moves slowly across the country. It, by the time it was not playing in Los Angeles, it was number one in New York. And in June of uh, 1967, uh, one of my people came and said to me, you're number one next week with Light My Fire nationwide. I cried. Was that your first number one? That was my first really chart. I'd never had a chart single before. It was, my watch stopped. (laughs) My watch stopped, so I later put the watch aside and bought an expensive watch the next day. And that, that, that we had had a number one, considering what we had started from, which was the smallest inkling of an idea and how it had grown, mostly because we were we were straight with everybody. We had a good reputation. The DJs would come to the office in Los Angeles. What would they pick up? They weren't picking up the rock records. They were picking up the Nonesuch records. They had amazing tastes, and we were very close to them. And we didn't ask for favors. If it wasn't right for them, it wasn't right for them, and they shouldn't play it. But we started with The Doors, and then we grew from that. Okay. Uh, did you get a piece of the publishing on these acts? Yes. I had 25% of the publishing. They had 75%. When the contract was over and I wanted to make one more album, the album that was to become L.A. Woman, I had a hunch Jim was going to go off to France. I didn't think the group was going to stay together after that. I didn't know that he was going to die. But I said, there is one more album to be had. And one of the negotiating points from the lawyer who said he's not going to give this up was that I give up my 25% of the publishing, which I, I said, we're not publishers. They can have it. No problem. That sealed the deal. And we had the opportunity to do the sixth studio album which I think is right up there where their first is the best. But starting with that sixth album, uh, they'd done Morrison Hotel before, which in retrospect is legendary with Roadhouse Blues and so many other songs, Peace Frog. But it wasn't quite as successful financially as what came before. So they make a record, L.A. Woman, and they fire Paul Rothschild and they make it themselves. Aren't you afraid? No, he was on that record. He was not fired. He quit, which is a very interesting story. We knew we were going to make a sixth album. So we're talking about what to do. The Doors start writing some material and Rothschild goes, hears hears it and says, I think it's awful. I don't want any part of it. I don't want to produce this. I had somebody in back of my mind to produce it. So I said, okay, sorry. Thank you for everything you've done. We'll remain friends, and we did, very close friends. We worked together on projects later on when he couldn't get work, and I had owned yet another label. But anyway, I didn't hear the material for L.A. Woman. I said to Bruce Botnick, you can produce this. Who is traditionally an engineer. Yeah, he's basically an engineer, but he had produced a great deal of what became one of the great albums of all time, the Love Forever Changes album, 
which is just so special. I knew he could do it, and he did it very, very cleverly, and he got them back in, and I said, I think we need we need some richer instrumentation. This is not a rock record anymore. This is a record from a point in time, so let's do what we think we should do. And uh, there was a song that I thought could be orchestrated, and that's what we did, and it opens up the record. Uh, you have this grand welcoming song that just overwhelms you. And then the rest of the record is what we intended it to be. We understood what was happening. It became the record which every time I played, I cried because I loved it so much. Uh, getting a record that you hear sometime for the first time, and I was not allowed to hear this record until it was done. We're talking forever changes, right? Yeah. Uh, and But when I heard it, I knew it was there. I knew the sequencing was wrong. I reserved the sequencing for myself, and I would listen to any good argument, and sometimes I would make changes if they were minor, but I knew how to, I knew how to sequence albums. Uh, I knew about the keys. I knew about the mood structure, what you want to do with the end of a first side to get them to turn to the, to the second side. All of that stuff was inherent in me, and so I took a crack at it. And they would say, we like it or we don't like it, and maybe make a change or two. But that worked. I was the final word, but I was not arrogant. I was, this is what I really believe in. Now give it a free, give it a careful listen. And I could pick out the songs that were going to happen. With The Doors, L.A. Woman was, was a song that was going to happen. It was destined. And I knew it was worth giving up the publishing so I could get this album, which was a statement. There were not going to be any more Doors albums. We did do a Jim, a, a, a Jim album, his poetry album, but that's another story. So that happened. And all of the songs hold up. The, the sound effects that are used uh, on the opening and close are uh, found in the sound effects library. So they got on that record. Uh, <laughs> the thunderstorm, it's off very much in the distance and very polite. And then it's writers on the storm. What a wonderful song that is. Hey, every day it rains in L.A., they play it. Uh, let's, yes. go, let's go back to the Butterfield Blues Band. Why did not not break bigger than it did? Very influential, but not a huge uh, sales success. They didn't have any singles hits. Without a single, it's very, very tough. I mean, it's possible. Look at, uh, but Dylan had singles. They had a strong, loyal group. And their records did very well. And the double record set that came out of the, uh, of the folk festival was, uh, was just incredibly successful. This is after the 1965 festival and things start falling apart. They had played with, with Dylan on stage. A couple of them had played with Dylan on stage. But they were, what happened with them is that other artists would say, well, you really worked and stayed with Butterfield, even though they don't have any hits. We're willing to take a chance with you. And what about Mike Bloomfield? What can you tell us about him who was in the Butterfield Blues Band? He was, he was into drugs so badly, he didn't know whether he was going to show up or not. Uh, the story, the album, Rothschild made, made the album, and after we had 10,000 of them ready to go, they were 
in their sleeves. He said, I didn't get it. I said, what do you mean you didn't get it? We were flying up to see Tom Rush, and we're in my airplane, and I, I just gently lowered the nose of the airplane and picked up speed, and he saw we were heading for the ground. I said, what do you mean? He said, I just didn't get it. And I said, convince me. And he talked for a few minutes with such passion. I straightened the airplane back up, and I kept some of the records, and I trashed the rest, kept the covers. And then we went out and we did it three times more. And he got what he thought was the record. And it it was excellent. What it lacked was some of the passion that was in the first album. Years later, I got the first album re-released on Rhino. And when I heard it, I said, this is, I got flummoxed. I shouldn't have done it. But it all worked out. And I got the first record out. And it was wonderful. And even Rothschild said, you know, Maybe I overdid it. And that was that. Okay, what about Tim Buckley? Uh, Tim Buckley is, uh, comes in the mail. His manager sends me an acetate of, uh, he said, this is someone who sings, and I think you should listen to it. And it's, I, I take them in the order in which they come in, and it floats to the surface three days later, and I hear Tim Buckley and I am absolutely knocked out. He's doing the wrong material, but the voice is there. And what can be do, done with that voice if we figure out what's going to fit that voice? And so I signed him and put together a proper team. We did the first album. I didn't think we hit it with the first album. Then we did the second album. And that's when we got it. The album was perfect. Yeah, Happy Sad with Buzz and Fly and all those other tracks. Yeah, yeah. It was what I was looking for. And suddenly he broke wide open. And it was wonderful to see happen. But there was a point when I knew he was going to go downhill. He felt that his audiences owned him. And that put him in a very depressive state. And so he became more cautious and more cautious. And then he stopped playing altogether. Uh, which was a shame because I don't think his audiences were trying to do that. He was into drugs a lot. We made a, a, a fourth album. I didn't think it was very good, but I released it because I thought it was the right thing to do. As time went over, I realized it was a much better album than I thought it was. And I, uh, uh, so I was happy I did that. I'm always trying to stay incongruence with the artists to feel what they feel and if we have a problem we just figure it out sit it out talk it out or bargain it out i mean i've, I've had some strange things happen with artists and groups like what well arthur lee and love i had a problem on the second album he said i don't have to record for you under my contract i was a minor when i signed the contract now you would not believe this guy was under 18 years old and he said, I'm just going to go find a better deal. And his lawyer was a very good guy. And he said, I didn't know anything about this. And I said, look, I absolutely trust you. I need only one thing from you. I need you to get me in the room with him when he's in a calm state. So uh, that happened. And uh, he said, well, I think I ought to... Uh, have 10% for everybody that's in the band. And he said, it's going to be nine people, so I want 90%.
we sit down and we talk and he realizes that he's over he's over pushing it and so i increase the advances and i increase the royalties and then paul rothschild does the second album which is not a good album it was experimental but it wasn't the album i expected and then we started working toward a third album i took rothschild off it and said to botnik you get along with him why don't you guys try to put the album together? And they did. Bruce brought in a lot of other musicians. He brought in an arranger for the opening song. That album was done, and then I worked through it with him, and we made some changes, and I got the sequencing right, and then we came out with the album. And that became a hit as an album, but not with any singles. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink that's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Would you ever tell any of your acts once the record was delivered that you were not going to put it out as is or that they needed to record a single? 
Uh, no, I, I wanted to get the singles from the album in some form that it would promote the album because that's where their income was and it was true of me as well. The singles were the calling cards for the albums. The singles on uh, Light My Fire did, re did remarkably well for the album. Suddenly, the album was selling over a million and a half records. Uh, but did you ever say, the album isn't done, you need one more song? Oh, yeah. And what would the acts say? The, well, Judy Collins is an example. I let Judy and her producer, who was a staff member, do the, do the fifth album on her own. And then they played the album for me, and it was good. But it didn't stand out. It was lacking a certain feeling. I didn't feel she was as passionately in the materials as, as I could wish her, but I had to show that passion someplace on the album. So I said, uh, we can't release what we have. We need to go out and look for more. And uh, she said, you know how much trouble I've had? And I said, Judy, I know I'm, I, I'm seeming like I don't care about the album, but I really do. I just don't think it's finished yet. So see if you can find some more songs. And uh, then I didn't hear from her. I figured, well, I'm on the don't call thing. And then three weeks later, I got a call and she said, you won't believe it. I met this wonderful poet who speaks French from Canada. And he writes these glorious songs. And I have got such and such and such and such. And she sings them over the phone for me. And you know who that was. Of course. Uh, Leonard Cohen, do you, what's the story of both sides now? That we, that we put it out because we thought it was a single. There's no story behind it. Uh, how did you actually find uh, and sign uh, Judy Collins? Uh, I found Judy Collins singing in a club downtown. And Columbia was looking at them as well. I saw enough material that I knew we had a starter album. I never thought that an artist has to hit with the first album. We'll build up, we'll learn, we'll do better, and maybe around the third album we'll hit it. But we'll do these things right and with honor, and we all listen to each other, and that's what happened. That's how we would do these things. And then somebody, somebody would come up with an idea. And Leonard Cohn was an amazing choice. You put his two songs in the album, and suddenly the glue flowed throughout the record. You had them exactly, precisely placed as to where you wanted them to be. When you heard it that way, then you knew you had an album. I was loath to release anything that I didn't believe was going to be good for the artist. If it was not going to be good for the artist, it wasn't going to be good for me. And the artists were really very good in trusting me about this. If I said no, they'd grumble a lot. But it always worked out. And then they would always remember that, and they would tell that story to other artists. So the artists at Electra were very, were very chummy. Okay, how do you end up with Bread, which is seemingly a different kind of music than the rest of uh, Electra? Yeah, how did I how did I get Bread? That um, you're very astute because that was a everybody says that was so different from what you were doing. When I had trouble with Love on the second album, their lawyers said to me, 
you handled it very well. If anything crosses my desk that I think might be good for you, I'll give you the first shot. And I got a call saying he had this group called Bread and so-and-so-and-so-and-so was in it. And I, I knew some of the names. David Gates, I knew from his other recordings. And I said, I'd love to hear something. Are they available to go to our studio? We, by that time, I had built a studio in California and the studio was available. And they went over that day and they recorded four or five songs. And the song was, and the album, or not the album, but the disc was delivered to me the next day. And I listened to the songs. And yes, they were popular. They were not what intellectual, but they were beautiful. And how hard is it to write a simple song? You write a song like If. When I heard that, I cried. I cry a lot when, when I'm listening to music because it, it just gets inside me so quickly. And I said, I'm going to make an offer. And I made an offer and he called me back and he said, the boys accepted it. I said, we're in business. Let's get started uh, working on an album. And they made the first album out at our studios and the album was quite wonderful, but it got put out the, at the wrong time. Crosby, Stills and Nash came out and that totally wiped any attention anybody was going to pay to them. It would, bread just was gone. So I said, we lost the first album, we're never gonna get it back. But Crosby, Tills and Nash aren't gonna last forever. Start writing. And they started writing and they were in the studio and I went into the studios and I would listen. And one day I said to uh, them, what's that fourth track? And they said, it's, oh, it's called If, and it's, I said, let me hear it, because I think that, that's got hit single capability. Now, I'd never picked hit, hit singles in my life. If they happened, they happened because they were part of something else. But I listened to it again, and I said, that's the single. And we came out with it, and that was the single. And suddenly, all those bread records, and the, all, everyone that came after went platinum, very quickly because they wrote they wrote simple songs these were guys who came in with their briefcases in the morning recorded from 9 to 12 had lunch finished at 5 picked up their briefcases and went home now nobody was using the studio between 9 and 6 they were all coming in at 8 o'clock at night to use it all night so these guys were perfect and we got along very well with them except there was a part of their contract I didn't know about. Their contract said that if any band, any member of the band left the band, the band was dissolved. And the drummer left the band. And I got a call in from the lawyer about this, and I said to him, give me his phone number. I said, I have an idea, and let me go try it out. So I went up to see him. And he gave me all the reasons they're not giving him enough of the money and so and so and so and so. And I said, look, you can wreck the group or you can make some real money. He said, how? I said, I will pay you your royalty, whether you're on the album or not. So you will collect on every album they sell, even if you're not on it. Now, that was about one and three quarter percent. 
which I, which I could easily afford. It was going to be about seven cents an album, but it was really big money down the line. So by doing that, I got him to sign off on it, and we kept the band alive. And did he play on the record? Nope. Didn't want to see him, but he got paid anyway. <laughs> and was that, the, was that the last bread record? No, no, no. That was the second bread record, which was the hit. They did about five or six of them. Okay, so he did he get paid on every record thereafter? He got paid on every record thereafter. <laughs> so why do these bands, after they have success, why do they break up? Internal stuff, usually, they don't think they want half of their songs on the album because the writers were really the guitarist and David. Sooner or later, it's just going to get to the point where nobody's going to want to play with anybody anymore. We had five, I think, albums with them. Uh, I thought that if it's going to break up, it's going to break up. We've got the best of what they have, and so we'll just move on. But trying to save a, trying to save a contract uh, was something that I was very conscious of. I didn't want to see bands split up, and I was willing to pay extra to keep the bands together. Do you remember any other stories about like that? Nope. But <laughs> there were always stories of me going and quieting people down and getting them back on track and getting them to talk, to talk together again. Uh, I mean, the artists that I worked with were wonderful. Harry Chapin was terrific. When you go through the list of artists we had... While we had bread, we had the Stooges just developing. We had Carly Simon, who was breaking out. We were yet to get Queen. We had the Doors, who were continuing to make records. We had Tim Buckley. And we had enough going to, to do well as we were looking for new artists. New artists would come up just when we needed them. A Harry Chapin come, would come up a year and a half after uh, a Carly Simon. That was a hard That was a hard contract to get, a really hard contract to get. But the Carly Simon contract? Oh, Carly Simon was easy. She always wanted to be on Electra. She thought of Electra in book terms because she was the daughter of the, uh, of the partner who ran Simon & Schuster Publishing. So <clears throat> she said, well, Electra reminds me of a good publishing company that watches its roster. Uh, and she was very easy to work with. Uh, and she would listen to, to ideas that I had. At first, I wasn't sure she was a writer, but then, but then she became a writer. And when I told her, we needed a single from the first album to move that forward. And I always thought, I always heard that's the way it should be, was the single. It's a tongue twister of a title for a DJ, but it opens like no other single you have heard. Simple piano notes. And then it goes into this song, which women will understand. Men won't get it, but I knew the women would understand. And my wife, my former wife, told me that she heard this on the radio and she saw cars pulling over to the side of the road. There were other ladies wanting to hear that song. And it broke her out big because we were willing to be daring. And because I was dead sure that was the song. Okay, so uh, why was it so hard to get Harry Chapin? Uh, because I was running into Columbia again. Columbia would go against me on, on act sometimes. I think simply because Clive liked to be in 
uh, jousting with me, we were we were friendly. We were definitely friendly. I had been recommended to see uh, Harry Chapin. I went down to see him uh, playing at the Village Gate. I thought there was a band there that, and his inclusion of a cello player, I thought was brilliant because that permitted us to get a different kind of song into his repertoire. Um, so uh, I made an offer, and then when Clive heard that I made an offer, he made an offer that was much bigger than ours and sat down and showed them uh, what their sales would be. Uh, his sales would be someplace less than Dylan, but more than so-and-so. Uh, and... He decided to sign with Clive, and I had to go to California. And he said, he came out to see me at the airport. He said, I have to tell you this, I'm going to go with, with Columbia. And I said, Clive is good, we're better, but I wish you well. And it ate away at me the entire flight out to California, and it ate away at me all week. And then I found out that the numbers Clive had showed were numbers that they showed artists on an inflated basis, or at least that's what I was told. So I was revitalized. I never said it, I never told uh, him that part of the story, but I gave him a ring and said, I'm coming in on Sunday and I'll be at your door at 6.30 to 7 in the morning and I'm not going away until you and I have a deal. You belong with Electra." I understand what you're doing. I love the way you've arranged the material. I love how you can write a song quickly. I like the way the band unites in their instrumentation. So I'll be there, and I'm going to bang on the door. And I was there, and I banged on the door. And we made a tough deal. Made a deal in money far more than I expected, of, I think, a $25,000 advance. Um, but uh, I then said, you know, I haven't produced a record in a long time. I'd love to produce this record. So I'll produce the record with you. We'll work it out. We'll finish the record. I'll do my sequencing for which I am famed for. And then we'll talk about it. And if we don't have something right, we're going to go fix it. That record's not going out with me as producer unless I know it is perfect. So he said... I can't beat your offer, but we've got to take our family with us. I said, I'll get a company jet because we were part of, uh, of, of what was uh, then uh, Warner, uh, Warner Communications. And so I got them to give me the plane and the dogs and everybody got on and everything happened and we were in the studio for three weeks and we did the album and then we did the mix. And then I lived with it. And then when I thought we had it, Harry agreed to everything that I had done and we came out with it and I made him the same promise. I won't issue any album the same month yours comes out because Clive can't do that. He's got 50 records he's got to get out that month and I'm taking advantage of what he can't do, which I do on purpose. But I wear them down. And Harry, he sort of pulls himself together and... Uh, calls Clive and says, I've got to go with Electra. And he went with Electra, and Clive said, Jack will do right by you. So all was peace. We fought it out. 
and the rest worked exactly as we thought it was going to work. But going back to that first album, uh, the track, of course, is Taxi, but it's the better part of seven minutes long. Yeah. Uh, we didn't care. We didn't, I don't recall that we made an, uh, a version of that, but FM radio would play that like crazy, and AM would pick it up. It happened, and the album happened, because we were, within eight weeks, we were a quarter of a million albums sold. Wow. Yeah, and then I would work with them on, what I liked to do was had people come over to a house I had in the country just on the weekends, and we would record everything very simply, and I would just sit and listen to the songs and study the songs and get myself into the songs. And if I thought we had it, we'd go into the studio. If I thought we didn't have it, we might go into the studio anyway, because when everybody was eating lunch, Harry was sitting in the corner writing more songs. He was wonderful to work with. How, how does uh, Richard Perry end up getting hooked up with Carly Simon? Because that was my idea. After we had a very good selling record from Carly, we needed a hit single. And I heard one. And I knew it needed an experienced producer. So I called his lawyer, who didn't particularly like me. He had been the Doors lawyer who uh, said to the Doors, Jack will never do this. And then Jack did it, and he was embarrassed by it. But he said, that's a good, that's a good choice. She's right for this. And so that, that happened. It was very easy. It was an off-the-wall choice for me, but I thought about it very carefully. I would go through whatever publication I could go through. If a producer was listed, I wanted to know who that was. And I had a list of them together with knowing the songs that they had recorded that I could go check on, and I had those records on file. So I just thought he was right. She needed somebody tough and authoritative, uh, because she didn't like making decisions much herself, but she was very, very good to work with. And they both were good to work with. There were some, there were some fights and stuff going on, but it, it all got settled. Now, she famously has stage fright and doesn't go on the road. To what degree did that affect you in terms of thinking of signing her and how to break records? Well, we didn't know that that was part of her, uh, her disease, that she did, that she couldn't perform, and I found out after the contract was signed. So I said, "We're just going to have to get her perform to perform, because I need to see what the problem is." We arranged to have her perform in West Hollywood at a club everybody went to, and told her she had to do it. Well, she said, "I'll only do it if I can uh, get a hold of." These, these band leaders, whom she knew were committed to be playing with somebody else, it turns out that somebody else was not, uh, was not going to do the recording at that time. So we said, they're all available. She said, oh, then I'm going to have to do it. We had someone who just actually was with her all of the time. And when she came in, she was nervous on the stage. But after 30 seconds, she was in command of the room and... You saw the nervousness, but you saw the love of it. The appreciation she got, she could suck it out of those people there. And it was a triumph. But then she proceeded not to go on the road. Yes, uh, she, wouldn't, she did not go on the road very much, but she did go on the road for big festivals. 
uh, but did not go on the road playing clubs. There's a big difference. If you have a big festival, you're in command of that festival, a lot of people. And she learned that she would get over whatever negative feelings she had in the first 30 seconds of performance. And she was always a pleasure to work with. She never argued with me about anything. And she had very good management. It was a uh, non-sexual love affair. It was, we really cared deeply for each other. And I watched out for her and she watched out for me. It was an excellent relationship. So tell us the story of Signing Queen. Ah, it's an interesting story. I had a call from Trident Studios saying that they had been recording a lot of artists and they thought they wanted their own record label. Uh, and they were sending some uh, tapes of these artists, they were 10 in all, uh, over with, a, with the person who was going to be the manager of this enterprise. The representative Trident came and he put 10 albums on my desk. By albums, I mean 10 tape boxes of 10 different groups. And he said, this is how we want to start. We want you to do for us what you did for Electra. Go from nothing and take us someplace and we have all this wonderful music. Uh, now, I knew I wasn't going to do that. And I knew it because I knew how those deals worked. You put up all the money, meaning Electra puts up all the money. You take your time away from uh, your artists because your people are doing stuff on this uh, new label. And you put up all the money and you get half the profits. Now, that's dumb to begin with. But I figured I'll listen to some of the stuff. So I listened to a couple of tracks of about three or four different albums. And then I see this thing with Queen. And I listened to a whole side. And there was something there. I heard one or two singles. I don't remember what they were. Keep yourself alive. Yeah, well, that's for sure. I, I just had a feeling that there was more to this band. So when he came back the next day, I said, look, I can't do that. I can't do for my artist what I want to do for my artist if I'm handling a label for somebody else. He said, yeah, I, I can understand. I, I thought you'd come up with that. I said, however, there is one group there, Queen, that I think is very promising. I heard two songs that I was happy with, and I said, it only takes one or two songs to get a start in America. I said, the album is not what I'd like it to be for a first album, but I know it's coming out in England and there's nothing I can do about that, but I would like to distribute and handle Queen in America. But handle them as a label. We, we would be their label, not Trident. And we would work together and you would be the manager. He said, well... You know that Columbia is interested. I said, I know that Columbia is interested, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come on over and see the band and talk to them for a while. When I saw them perform on stage, just as sort of an audition stage, they didn't move. Talk about dance. They were frozen stiff. And I remember writing a, 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 a three-page letter to them, which I wish I still had, about things that I thought they could do to improve their performance. Little did I know that we were going to have this explosion uh, of Freddie Mercury. Uh, but then I decided to make you comfortable. I'm going to send over every week one of our other key people. So a uh, person who, who, who did radio, who did normal publicity, 
anybody that was material in their moving forward went over and spent three or four days with them. And I had them pretty electro-oriented. And I, uh, I said to the manager, well, uh, I'm willing to make an offer. He said, well, we haven't heard from Clive Davis yet. I said, how long does it take for Clive Davis to make an offer? He said, we don't know what's happening. And I sat in with a meeting with them and somebody said something stupid. So I have a little bit more orientation toward you now. So I said, you, have you seen the contract uh, from Columbia? And he said, no. Uh, I said, you better get out your magnifying glass because it's going to be 30 pages. And someplace on page 17, it's going to tell you what you get. I said, our contracts are different. They're much simpler. And our contracts indeed were. Our contract was a letter. It started as a letter. It, it said how much we wanted them on the label, why we wanted them, the advances they would get, the royalty they would get, the territories we had. At the beginning, it was just North America. It ended up that we had the rest of the world outside of Europe. But then it was accompanied by something called the small print. And it had all of the things that the big com companies have in their contracts, and not all, but many of them, except they were written so simply and with, with humor that people liked reading them. And I never had any lawyer call me and ask for any change from that contract except the modification of one clause. The clause was, record company agrees to treat artists with love and affection. Artists, in terms, agree to treat record label <laughs> people with a modicum of respect. And that was it. But I didn't send the contract off yet. I, I said, I want to put myself in their shoes. What is Columbia not going to do that I can do? And since the contract was only a page and a half letter, which had all the money stuff in it, and four pages folding of... Uh, of small print, and we called it the small print. I said, I'm going to write a check for $25,000 and sign it. Anybody's going to tell me not to do this, but I'm going to do it. So I didn't tell anybody, and I sent it, and they haven't heard from Clive, and here's $25,000 sitting in front of them. When they're desperate, they deposit the check. We have the artist. <laughs> And then the first album is very good. I bought it when it came out, but you don't really have any success till the second album. And then yeah. the third album goes wild. The third album goes wild, but I believed in them. Now, I left after the second album, but uh, and there were some complaints from David Geffen about the group, and I said, have you ever had an experience where the first album is promising, the second doesn't make it because they're not sure of where they are, but by the third album they may be? Wait for the third album. And uh, the third album was it. Okay, just going to one more act. Tell us the story of the Stooges. The Stooges. Ah, yes, the Stooges. You know, you've picked all the right groups in this. I commend you on getting everything that I prepared for I had somebody working for me called Danny Fields. Danny's job was to go to the clubs at night, sit around, take the temperature of what was happening, all that stuff that was essential, and come back to me with the information because I was going to get my good night's sleep. But if he wanted to start his day at 11 o'clock at night, it was okay with me. He could come in late in the afternoon, which is exactly what happened. 
and he tells me about this group he had seen because I had let him go to Detroit to check out the MC5. And he said there was this other band performing with him, and the MC5 say that if we're going to sign them, we got to sign these guys. Uh, I said, well, get a cassette, get something on, on what they do and who they are, and I heard nothing. I mean, it, it just was a disaster. But I said, I trust you. If you think they're that going to be that good, then let's take a chance. I'll sign the contract, which called for like 15000 No, it was much, much less than that. It was $5,000 advance. And, you know, the worst that can happen is they get the $5,000 and I walk away. But they came into New York and they came and loaded and they had nothing. I couldn't hear a thing. And so I said to them, as far as I'm concerned, you're still a lecture artist. Go get clean and come back. And they came back a month later, and they had nothing to play for me. I said, where are you going to get the material? They said, oh, we're going to write it tonight. <laughs> so I said, okay. And they did. So I had a produced album, and when they played it back for me, the, 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 the tension and the strength weren't quite there. It was on the corner of it, but not, not inside. So I said, give me the master tapes, uh, the master mixes. And they were eight track. And so I went and this is in New York where we didn't have a studio, but we had very good listening rooms. I went into the main listening room, eight track, turned them all up loud as I could go. I pinned every, every uh, microphone and my God, there it was. So we came out with the album, not knowing what to expect. I was told that if I released this album, I was ruining my record company. I said, I don't think so, but you never know how these things are going to work out. And you know that Danny is going to knock himself out trying to uh, promote them. And so, yeah, let's go for it. And we did, and it started, and it got picked up lightly. But it was on the second album where it really took hold. And after that, uh, I was no longer at the company. And so they didn't have me there and they went and signed elsewhere. Yeah, they went with raw power with Columbia. Tell us the story of Nunsuch. St. John's College again. Now, you've asked every question that I hoped you'd ask. <laughs> the stuff that was important to me, not the stuff that's going to look glorious to anybody else, but the stuff I lived through. My friend Adam Pinsker and I used to buy records together. 12-inch LPs were $5. And uh, in order to buy two, we each had to buy a half. And, you know, I, oh, why do they have to be this expensive? I love Baroque music. Why can't I get it? Anyway, I forget, totally forget about it. Meanwhile, St. John's College is uh, giving me an education in Baroque and folk music. And I'm sitting in a delicatessen before we had our own distribution, waiting for my New York distributor, and notice that there's a Baroque concert happening in the small theater next to Carnegie Hall. So I say to myself, I get, there's no tablecloth, it's just butcher's paper. So I start figuring out, can I have a record that sells for the same price as a quality paperback 
that is profitable? And do I know whether I have the material? I knew I had the material. And by that, I meant I had been been collecting magazines over the years uh, from English, French, and German uh, German publishers, which would list all of their serious music. And this music that I love so much, if they had four stars, I would make a circle. And I had a whole stack of this information. So I knew these companies were in the Europe, but not able to get released in the United States. Hey, what if I make a release engine for this? What am I going to call it? I had, I thought of a publishing company that went out of business decades ago in England called Nunsuch and said, since this is no possibility that this is going to work, uh, but I'm going to give it a shot, we're going to call it Nunsuch. And so I figure out that you can actually make a record, and if you sold it, you would sell it uh, at about the $2.50 record would go out of us at about $1.50. And the rest was the uh, distributor, which wasn't us, uh, and the dealer. So it would cost us 90 and we could make 60 cents an album. And, but I knew we had to come out 10 at a time. So I had the first 10 albums ready uh, ready to go, including a two-record uh, two set uh, that was critical. And my sales manager went to the key stores in major markets and talked to them and said, we want to do this. We want to sell it at 250 They say, it's a bastard price. It's got to be 298 And I said, 298 strikes. It hits at the quality of this. It's just another 98-cent multiple. No, we're going to do it at the price of a quality paperback, and that's how we're going to advertise it, which is what we did. And we had 10 records ready to go, which I had uh, gotten from many people overseas. We started the project in November, and on February 14th, the following year, 1964, we released the first 10 LPs. Now, I had 10 LPs and 10 LPs and 10 LPs already picked out and in the works going beyond that. I committed about sixty dollars to $70,000 of company money to test this project out. Uh, fortunately, I had a young man from the Even Dozen Jug Band who played kazoo who knew this music cold and was very helpful in writing, in writing record notes. And we came out with the first 10 records, and three weeks later, we hadn't sold any. And a little nervousness begins to set in. And then suddenly, they're disappearing. They're all selling off the shelves. We have to make more. Nobody, our advertisements didn't take a page. They took a page and a third. And it said what we were doing. We were very good, very competently made records at the price, as an equivalent paperback. And then we could come out with material. We came out with 10 records a month. We had 90 records out there doing phenomenally well before anybody else who had all of these classical catalogs like, like Vanguard. Uh, they, they thought I was going to fall flat on my face. They knew about it beforehand because I told them about it. 
figuring that they might support it and come out with their own stuff. So we, because I wanted to create this price level, but they weren't for it. They said, no, we got to get 595. I said, you have to, but I don't have to because the music is already recorded. It's paid for. I just have to pay these guys a 10% royalty. And that's going to be a lot more money. And they got nice advances. And the result was exactly what I hoped it would be. And then I started playing with the idea, what else could we do with Nonsuch? It just can't be Baroque music. What else am I interested in? I was interested in the very nascent beginnings of electronic music. And I ran into some gentlemen who did a basically an instruction manual with information as how you can do this yourself. So I had electronic music. But then I wondered, you know, there's, there's got to be somebody out there recording world music that we don't know about. And he walked in the door about a month later. He had gone to Sam Goody's, and the interesting records to him were our folk music records, which were wide-ranging, uh, and so he came in to see us, and he had all of this material, like music from the morning of the world, which was gamelan music. And we signed him up to do nothing but go out and record this kind of music. We paid him to go out and record. We improved his equipment. And he went out and for the next eight years recorded music all over the world. This was what we would call world music? Yes. Right. So it music from all kinds of odd places where you never thought you'd heard anything from. And then you would meet people later in life and who said, your music changed my life. I was listening to Music Morning of the World. I just fell into it, realized I wasn't happy here, and went to live in Europe. Or I went to live in Asia. The music affected people's lives in ways I never expect. And the covers were superb because... Graphics were big on my list, and I had the best art director extant, and we were off, and none such today is still alive and doing business and has this great history. I released only the music I liked. I, I know I was arrogant in that, uh, but I did re release the Stooges, but I had to love it or had to see a reason in it, and I was very, very lucky in the opportunities that came to me and in the opportunities I seized by either creating them or getting somebody to go with me who was already out there and who needed help. So how did you decide to sell to Warner Communications? That's an interesting story. This distribution was always a problem. You had every label going through independent distributors unless they were Columbia DECA or RCA, who had their own controlled distribution. And you saw how much better that was because they spoke with your voice. So I started at about 1966, I started bugging Amit and I started bugging Mo Austin, with whom I was very friendly. And Ahmed and I had gone to both to St. John's, so at least he would sit into what he thought would be an intelligent idea and say, we have to start our own distribution system. You have no idea how much money is out there, and we do not have control over the mis message in the product. I said, I don't want to use the word product, but there's a, there's a message we need to get out, and you only are going to get a message coherent with what you want if their distribution is yours. You're the ones who write the, the paychecks. And everybody said it was a good idea, but they didn't have enough critical mass. 
uh, I said, you guys have got 80% of it. I'm, my company is 15 to 20% of it. My output doesn't, uh, is, doesn't compete with your, uh, your output. My output is my interest. So it broadens the sense of what this new distribution can offer. And we finally decided to do it. And within about four months, it was done. And it was a miracle. Suddenly, we were the number one sellers. The Warner Music Group was just doing phenomenally well. We topped $100 million our first year, which is what I thought was the number we wanted to reach. And then it went to 150 or two. We were, and our money was critical to the parent company, so they loved the idea. Steve Ross could look at a wall of numbers and pick out the wrong one. I've seen him do it. But he recognized something that compared to the film company was so important to him. His films required a lot of cash up front. Our records didn't. But our payroll, which was our own distribution generating all that cash, which we weren't taking back, he took and used it to finance pictures. So he had an automatic functioning, we get it here, we place it there, we grow. And it was a brilliant, uh, I didn't know he felt this way until it happened, but I thought it was extremely smart of him and it was great for us. And once I had that done, I knew my key to freedom was eventual because I could, once it was up and running, Geffen merged uh, his label with, with Electra. Great artists came with him. Everything was working. And that happened in uh, 1970, which was the 30th anniversary of Electra. And I served my, my three years there. I ran the companies, got to know the other guys. We got to know each other. And when uh, I had an option that needed to be picked up and it wasn't, someone forgot about it or it got lost in the shuffle. And I waited politely, and then I sent him a note, sent Steve uh, Ross a note saying, my option has not been picked up, for which I am most grateful. You've been wonderful, but I think it's time that I go out on my own and do something that I've dreamed about for years. This movie, The Holiday with Cary Grant, was just a fabulous movie, and it had left something that I had promised I would do deep inside myself. And I got to do it. And when I was done, and I had done all the explanation, I, I went back to the people who had been good to me and said, I can do this job for you, and now let me do it. Okay, couple, okay just to cover, though, ultimately Warner, Steve Ross, bought all those three labels, though, you know, the Warner Music, the Atlanta Electra. So pre, they, you had actually sold Electra prior to the formation of Warner, of WIA the distribution company. How did you decide to sell to Steve Ross? How did I decide to sell it? It was an opportunity for me to get out and to have in, and, and to have distribution we own. They both were equal uh, of equal importance to me. Knowing that I would have control and have an instrument to work with and that our records would be handled the way we needed them to be handled was powerful. And the and the potential exit, I expected them to pick up my contract, and I'd have been five years instead of three. But I was willing to do that. And we made a tremendous amount of money on the way. So all I was doing was making my company more productive, better, 
we could we could we had an argument that we could give distribution that was equal to or better than Columbia's. Did you, in retrospect, do you feel the number Steve paid you was fair? I mean, the, the $10 million that they gave me for right. the sale of the company. I had to work them up to get them there, but it gave me freedom because the money, 30% of that money was taxable. Capital gains tax were between 25 and 35% at that time. Uh, and I had shareholders. Theodore Bikel had 5%, which was now worth a half a million dollars, and my mother had 5%. There goes a million. And there was about a million dollars I was giving to the staff. I walked out with about four and a half million, which was not a lot, but it was a lot back then. But I was free. I was able to build a life for myself, and I had no idea about how I was going to do it. But I knew the company was in good hands and that the artists were in good hands. Okay, I know you're a student of the game. So what do you think of the business and music today? Well, it's totally different. And today it's different from six months ago. The music has always been broadened by the technology. CDs were imperative to our growth in sales. And in the year 2000, our sales as record companies combined was about 24 billion. Today, it's about 20. And it may be less because we're not all back in our home bases. Record making has changed. Contracts have changed. The opportunities for people to bypass record companies have changed. They can go up uh, online themselves. They can hire people who are specialists in doing that, who can sell 80 million of a download that record company labels don't have. I think the artists have far more control. I think that's okay because I think the artists who are very concerned about the money are very concerned that we pay them fairly, we pay them exactly what they're entitled to, and we have extraordinarily deep royalty statements which they can go online and visualize. So I think there are so many different ways that music gets across. And I think all of these different ways are essential to mu for music to grow. Actually, when you think about uh, Spotify, I remember a conversation those of us who ran record companies would have in the 60s. And the conversation went, boy, what we really need is a jukebox in the sky. But the problem was we had this great idea, but we didn't know how to get it down to the people. The technology wasn't there yet. Digital technology were punch cards. You stuck them in a machine. But we had the idea that you had to get directly to the customer. And we would talk about a lot, but nothing could happen because the technology simply wasn't in place. But it is in place now. I think having a, many different opportunities for artists to do it themselves, to make it up, to create distribution of their own, to be their own commander. I think that's there and I think that's good. Okay, this has been wonderful. Jack, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. It's a story I wanted to tell, but it's a story I wanted to have stimulated by good questions. Well, thank you so much. We got most of the story, although I could still dig deeper. We didn't cover Rhinoceros and Apricot Brandy. We didn't cover the original version of MC5 with uh, that had to be edited after. But we'll save that for another time. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Thank you, Jack.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.